Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We lay our lives bare before you. We ask that you have your way, that you'd loose your spirit, that you'd be honored and glorified. Lord, we love you. Let the word fall in the good soil of our heart this morning. And God, if there's areas of our life that need to be weeded this morning, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you would do that. If you will, turn into your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. Primarily, that's where we'll be camping out today. And it's a word that's been on my heart for about a year. I watched a movie um, called The Honest Thief. I think that's an oxymoron, right? The Honest Thief. And the premise of the movie is hoping to cut a deal. A professional bank robber robs 10 banks. The FBI police have never been able to find, find out who it is or catch him. He's accumulated some $12 million, and he calls the FBI, and he offers to return all the money. Why? Because he was repentant and found Jesus? No. Because he was remorseful of all the people that he cheated out of that money? No. Because in Hollywood, you fall in love with a woman, and that's the reason why he wanted to return the money. And, um, not, and he wanted to avoid the consequences of his action. This morning, I'm going to be talking primarily from 1 Samuel 15th that delayed or partial obedience is still disobedience. It's a hard word. It's a harsh word. That's Caleb's spiritual gift, not mine. But we'll be going through the life of Saul, which tragically ends. ends. He started well, but he didn't end well. And the Bible is filled with stories of delayed uh, obedience or partial disobedience. This week, as I was praying through it, I was reminded of Jonah. God asked him to go to Nineveh and preach the Ninevites the hard word uh, that they needed to hear, and he refused. In fact, he got on a boat, and that boat was sailing for Tarshish, and, and it said the wind and the waves and the storms came. The sailors were scared. They cast lots, and they determined that it was Jonah that was the problem, why the, the, the seas were so rough. And so they call him up. He admits to it. As you know, he goes over into the waters, and he is swallowed in the fish, and he spends three days in the belly of a fish. And finally, after he repents, he is vomited up onto dry land, and he goes and he preaches the word to the Ninevites. One of the craziest stories when you just try to get your head around it, the Old Testament too, is when the Hebrew people who had been in captivity had been in slavery for so long. Moses comes in, he sent this, God sends the 10 plagues, they see the miraculous sign, they escape through the Red Sea, and then they get into the wilderness. Folks, do you know how long of a walk it is if you left Egypt and walked to Canaan? Anybody? 11 days. It's an 11-day walk, and yet they spent 40 years in the wilderness because of their disobedience. They murmured and complained from the day they left. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt and be in captivity again. The spies go out, and they come back with a report. They're fearful. The people refuse to move. Moses goes up on the mountain, comes back, and they're worshiping golden calves. So what should have taken 11 days to walk? took 40 years. Now, there are also awesome stories of of first-time obedience when God calls you even in difficult circumstances to go forth. I I was reminded this morning um, and this week of Nehemiah. 
his heart was broken over the condition of, of the walls. And he went in spite of difficult conditions. God made a way. He made a plan. And Nehemiah obeyed the Lord and they rebuilt the wall. When I think about um, the heroes of my faith, Abraham, at 75 years old, God called him to leave his land and his people and to go to the land of Canaan. And he did it obediently. And he's the same Abraham who God called to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And he was willing to do that. But God gave him a way of a mistake. Obviously, as we jump to the New Testament, I'm reminded of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Drop your nets and follow me. And they did. They did. First time. Obedience is doing what we should when we should do it. Do you know that 99% obedience is still 100% disobedience? And Jesus addressed this many times throughout his ministry. In Luke 6, 46 specifically, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? And so this morning, I want to do a deep dive into the life of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. It's the tragic story of someone who was humble. He was even reluctant to become king. In fact, story tells us back in chapter 10 or 13 of Samuel that he, um, they cast lots. They determined he would be the first king. Samuel went to go anoint him and, and let him know, and he was hiding among the equipment and the baggage there. So he started out as this humble, somewhat reluctant king. And as we'll later learn, Saul starts out, um, he, he begins to turn to this disobedient, this paranoid, this lying, controlling king. So we pick up the story. I just want to give you some, some background. We pick up the story um, of, of Saul in First uh, Samuel 13, starting around verse 7. And this is what we know about Saul. He's 30 years old. He's the first king of, of Israel. Um, and he is anointed king by the Lord's prophet Samuel. And, um, so we see in this narrative that Samuel has delivered a word of the Lord to Saul. And this is basically what he says. He says, go. This is what the Lord, word of the Lord says. He says, I command you to go gather your troops. We're going to make war against the Philistines. Wait seven days. Wait for me. I'll come. And at the end of seven days, I'll make sacrifice, and then you wage war. Pretty clear. Command of the Lord. Wait. I will, I will come make sacrifices to the priests of the house. And so what we pick up in, in verse uh, 13, verse 7, we see what happens. Saul remained at Gilgal, and the troops with him were quaking in fear. He waited the seven days, the time set by Samuel. By the way, Samuel just said, I'll come on the seventh day. He didn't say, I'll come in the morning for breakfast. I'll meet you for lunch. He just said, on the seventh day, I will come. He waited the seven days set by Samuel, but the, but, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to, to scatter, quake in fear. And he said, bring me the burnt offering and bring me the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And as Saul was finishing up the offering, Samuel arrives on the scene. And then the next words are classic. I heard this all during my childhood and sometimes from my wife in 36 years of marriage. This is what he says. What have you done? What have you done? 
I told you to wait the seven days that I would come. But Samuel was now operating out of fear. And note to self, it's better to wait on God than operate out of fear. Because when we do, we're disobedient. And that's exactly what has happened. Saul replies, he tries to make an excuse. When I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, verse 12, I thought now the Philistines will come down against us at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to do the offering instead of waiting on you. Note to self, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, some of my life words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? Your own understanding. And always acknowledge me and I will direct your paths. Samuel disobeyed. It was very clear what he was to do. And Samuel says to him in a strong rebuke, what you have done, I've heard this from my mom too, what you have done is foolish. You've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, I would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought after a man after his own heart, which we know will be David, the second king of Israel, who's not yet even born, and appointed him ruler because you have not kept the Lord's command. Ouch, strike one. What did did Samuel say? Because of his disobedience, no one in his family had many sons that were in the military with him. Nobody from his lineage, from his line, will ever inherit the kingdom, will be king. Ouch. I'm sure like all of us, when the Lord brings conviction, uh, that we we obey and we never have issue again. But in the life of Samuel, we'll find, you know, the saying where there's smoke, there's fire. This was the beginning of the smoke. And it was smoking and revealing deeper things. So turn with me now to 1 Samuel 15. And we'll pick up the narrative we're going to go over today. And I just want to say this. Caleb took a month. Caleb took a month to go through Mark 8. And I'm going to try to get through this in the next 30 minutes, Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it's not the same when he's not here. He lets me preach, but he's not here. I, I wanted to return the favor of all the jokes he's made about me over the last two years. It just is not the same. So let's pick up the narrative. In verse 1 of Samuel 15, Samuel said to Saul, I am the Lord. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people. So listen now to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites. Completely destroy all that belongs to them. Ready? Verse 3, do not spare them. Put to death the men, the women, children, the infants, the cattle, and the sheep, and the camels, and the donkey. Basically, it's pretty straightforward what the command of the Lord is. Kill everything. And I believe what Samuel is saying to Saul in this moment is, hey, Saul, I need you to listen up. Concentrate here. You need to obey the command of the Lord. You blew it back in chapter 13. You lost your lineage to the throne, but now you have an opportunity to do it right. And so it's a strong word. Obeying the Lord is a critical thing, and we'll find out what happens. Spoiler alert, just to give you a heads up, by the time we get to the end of chapter 15, 
Saul is going to violate this command. Not only did Saul lose his future lineage to the throne and for his family, but Saul himself will be removed as king too. I just want to give you a little background because verses two and three are hard verses to look at. It, It rubs up against kind of our moral compass, our sense of right and wrong. And to understand the context of why God is saying, wipe them all out, men, women, children, all the animals. Why? Well, back when um, the Hebrew people left Egypt, they were in a long train headed to Canaan. Remember, it should have taken 11 days. It took 40 years. And typically in that train, you'd see the men and the soldiers in the front. And at the very back of the train of the people would be the elderly, the infirmed, the sick, the weak, some of the children. And the Amalekites, when they first got out of Egypt, attacked them from the rear. And um, the Amalekites were modern-day guerrilla warfare folks. They lived in the mountains, and they went after the vulnerable and the weak. And God says, I will punish the Amalekites. And so we find out later in Exodus 17, Moses is giving a command to write it in the book. Hey, Aaron, let's remember this. He says, I will punish the Amalekites. And in Exodus 17, verse 14, he says, I will blot them out. How long did God wait before he executed his judgment on them? 400 years. 400 years. God is not obligated to act as we do. God can execute his judgment at any time. He was waiting for them to repent. But now, 400 years later, time is up for the Malachites. They saw no um, sign of them repenting. And let me just say this. This wasn't a one-and-done situation. The Malachites continued to harass and attack Israelites for generations to generations. But when we read verse 3, it's a hard verse to read. Kill everything. Kill everything. And as a side note, I believe the judgment of the infants and children is covered by the grace and mercy of God. They will not be held accountable. They will not be sentenced to eternal damnation for what they did not know and did not do. So take comfort in that um, this morning. So we pick up the story, and it looks like um, Saul is going to obey. If you go to verse 7, he says that he assembled 210,000 troops. What a sight that must have been. And he went and he attacked the the Amalekites. So we pick up in verse 7. It says, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way to Havilah Ashur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took King Agog a lot of the Malachites alive, and all of his people he totally destroyed with the sword. So far, so good. Then we run into verse 9, which I referred to as the big butt. Yes, I said big buck in church. Um, but here, take notice of the butt. But Saul and the army spared Agog, the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised, weak, he totally destroys. Saul spares the king Agog. What was he told to do? Kill everyone, everything, everything that had breath. And he compromised. He did not obey completely. And like us, sometimes when the conviction comes and we just do what I call the Heisman pose, we just hold off God. In this moment, 
he doubles down and it gets, it gets worse. So what happens next is the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He was away. He was going to meet uh, Samuel or he, uh, Samuel was away with the Lord. He was going to meet Saul down in Gilgog the next day. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel the night before and told him, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. He cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone down to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. And then he turned and went to Gilgad. God's heart was broken over this. Saul's disobedience hurt the Lord as it does ours. And since we can't grasp all uh, of God's heart in this moment, the closest thing we can come is for God to express in human terms how we felt about it. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. This is a use of an anthropomorphism where basically God explains himself to us in human terms so man can have some understanding. There are anthropomorphic um, lines all throughout scriptures. When, when, when he refers to God, the eyes of God go forth or the hands of the Lord. He is basically trying to tell us how saddened he is by his disobedience. And we see that Saul is no longer the reluctant, humble king. We're seeing what the years of military uh, victories, the prestige of the throne of Israel, all revealed the pride in Saul's heart. Saul wasn't grieved in the least. Folks, he's creating monuments to his disobedience. Saul was quite pleased with himself. The next thing he does, he runs out to Samuel as he sees him coming because there's not the bitest, uh, slightest bit of shame or guilt about not disobeying. When Samuel reached Saul, Saul runs out and said, Lord, bless you, man of God. I have completely destroyed the Amalekites. I have fallen the Lord's instructions. And one of the funniest lines that comes out next, I don't think it was funny to God and it wasn't funny to Samuel, but I found some humor in the statement. Samuel confronts him and says, oh, really? Then what is the bleeping of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle? Saul came out to Samuel with such boldness, boasting of his obedience. And he starts to double down and he starts to lie. The first lie, he says, I've done everything that you told me to do. I've done everything. And Samuel's like, bah, moo, what's the lowing of the sheep? I mean, can you imagine this conversation? I killed everything. There's King Agog over there. And just as far as the eyes can see, sheep and cattle. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy. Samuel uh, calls him out on this. And, and so um, he said, I did everything that you did, that you asked me to. And he's self-deceived. His pride and disobedience are getting the best of him. And it made him blind and deaf to his own sin. What was completely obvious to Samuel was invisible to Saul. And you know what? This reminded me this week as I got into this passage that we all have blind spots. We all need the conviction of the Holy Spirit to come and reveal his truth. And I'll take this just a little farther. I think all of us need Samuels in our life. Someone that's willing to tell us the truth, to love us even in the worst of us, and to call out our disobedience to the Lord. The word says, woe to the man in Ecclesiastes who falls and does not have another to pick him up. 
And so take heed to the word of God this morning. We need folks that are willing to have tough conversations and speak into our lives. Saul answered. Now we go, so he said, I did everything you said. Now he's going to double down and he's going to go to uh, the next thing that we see uh, in verse 15. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Malachites. They spared the best of the best, the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to your God, your Lord. But we completely destroyed the rest, meaning that the ends justify the mean. You see the change in language right here? All throughout um, Samuel, verse, you know, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, um, Sam, uh, Saul refers to the Lord, my God, our God. And now he's made that little shift over where he's saying, we did it for your God, your God. So he's no longer claiming his God. Here comes the classic spin, folks. The soldiers did it. It wasn't me. It was the people. They keep the best of the animals to sacrifice to your Dear God, note to to myself and note to you, sin is still sin. Whatever spiritual twist, whatever spiritual sin you put on it, if, if you have been disobedient to the Lord, don't try to justify it. Don't try to blame others. Own it. Radical repentance is what he's looking for. And I can speak to this personally. I'm, I'm a firm believer in, you can't give away what you haven't experienced. I want to tell you a little story about me and my delayed obedience. I grew up in Southern California, as did my wife, all of our parents, all our family, brothers and sisters there. I'd never lived anywhere else. And so in my young 30s, I had a, a successful career, um, but I was starting to feel restless. And in my restlessness, um, I cried out to the Lord, what is it you want? I, I'm here. I will obey. And about two weeks later, I got a phone call that basically said, hey, we got this job opportunity for you in Charlotte and Atlanta. Um, Would you interview for it? And I said to Pamela, well, maybe this is the Lord transitioning us. I went, I interviewed in Charlotte. I wanted to be there. My grandparents had a house there. I I knew people there. I loved Charlotte. I spent my summers in Charlotte as a kid with my grandparents. I didn't know anybody in Atlanta. I interviewed, I told Pamela, Hey, we're going to go to Charlotte. I'm sure of it, but I'm going to go to Atlanta and see what happens. I step off the plane and no doubt it felt like the audible voice of God. He said, this is your new home. And I'm like, Heisman, Pose, what? I don't know anybody. I've never even been to Atlanta. And so I go and interview and the Lord confirms all along the way that this is where I was to go. I wanted the easy thing. The easy thing would have been obeying him and going to Charlotte, but um, God called me not to Charlotte, but to Atlanta. I went fast forward seven years. I'm at the top of my career. I've hired the company has grown tenfold. I've hired hundreds of employees. I'm on the top of the world. Pamela and I are building a new house. Our kids are thriving in this new environment. And I feel that same restlessness again. And I'm like, no, Lord, back off. I am happy what I'm doing, happy where I am. And for a year, I stiff-armed the Lord. I stiff-armed the Lord and said, I don't want that transition. I don't want that transition. Fast forward during that year, I lost peace. I lost joy. I lost direction in my life. I felt like my heart um, was a heart of stone, not a heart of flesh. I wasn't willing to obey. I went on a men's retreat, came back, went to work the next Monday morning. Something happened to me that's never happened before. 
and I hope never happens again. I walked through the doors and I got violently ill and started throwing up, ran for the bathroom, threw up. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, you need to obey me. And I said in that moment, yes. I walked in, I resigned my job, didn't even tell my wife, came home, said, guess what, honey, I quit my job. Spent the next six months on my face, repenting before the Lord. God restored me and blessed me beyond what I could ask for or imagine. So Samuel comes out. It's now time for the rebuke, what the Lord told him last night. And in verse 16, um, he, he says to, um, to Saul, Samuel says, be quiet. Or as Caleb would say, just shut up. Of course he does, and he keeps on talking. He keeps on lying and justifying it. And Samuel asks him, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Not only did he disobey, but did you see the word that was used? He pounced on it. He went all in. There was nothing in him that was reluctant, shy. He didn't just dip his toe in the water. He went all in. And again, we see pride and arrogance. And then he goes in verse 20 and maintains, I did obey the Lord. Twice he said, I obeyed the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Agog. I did what you said. The soldiers, again, the spin, the soldiers were the ones who did this, not me. And so blame them. But we did it to sacrifice the Lord, your God, again. And then in verses that are very well known to us, Samuel says to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. He's referring to the Old Testament law, the ceremonial symbolic act of worshiping Worshiping the Lord involves sacrificing animals to worship the Lord and to repent of our sin. What Samuel is basically saying to him is God is not impressed by the sacrifice, the outward things. He's impressed. He values obedience. Obedience is greater than the outward ritual things. Now, I'm going to say something right now, and Pastor Seth, don't come after me. Let me, let me get through the point. I'm going to try to bring this into context, modern-day context. And I'm going to say obeying God is better than worshiping God. I said, don't stone me yet. But it doesn't make sense that we can come here Sunday after Sunday, raise our hands and worship to God, all the while intentionally disobeying the Lord. It's like we believe that if we can live in sin or we have sin habits um, and we disobey the Lord when he's calling us to move, that he'll be impressed by our, our worship. He's not. He's not. It's living into disobedience and believing that God will be impressed. He's not. It's as though we think we can give God outward things and God will overlook our sin. Wrong. Wrong. He's a righteous, righteous judge. Wanting his kindness leads us to repentance. What he wants is obedience. That is what is true worship to him. Living a life of obedience honors him. It glorifies him. Yet we sometimes convince ourselves that we make these sacrifices. Well, if I serve the Lord and volunteer for thousands of hours, if I give lots of money to the Lord, that he's just going to overlook our sin. It means little, sacrifices mean little to the Lord if it doesn't come from a surrendered heart to God. And how do we know that? through obedience, by simple obedience. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you'll obey me. 
Now comes the judgment of the Lord, and it's harsh. He says in verse 23 and 24, your rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. He's basically saying he views your rebellion, your pride, your arrogance, your hardened heart like witchcraft and idolatry. And he detests that. He hates that. It's demonic. And, and Saul, still thinking that he can hang on to the rain, starts to confess his sin in verse 25. But then he does what so many of us do when we're in the situation and we've been, quote, caught, if you will. He says, okay, I said that I fulfilled it um, completely twice. Then I blamed it on the soldiers. But now I did it in verse 20 uh, and 25 because I feared the people. I feared the people. Samuel's here tell him, too late, buddy. And in verse 28, we say, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel and Saul will not see each other for another 30 years. They depart. Samuel goes, or Saul goes, and he lives a tormented life. Evil spirits came to him. Um, just like in the garden, though, um, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't die immediately, but the consequences of their sin um, went forth. But we'd all die. And same thing with with uh, Saul's reign was a slow death. What do we what should I take from this last excuse he used? I feared the people. The fear of man will sometimes cause you to not do the things you should or to do the things you shouldn't do. Did you hear me? The fear of man will sometimes cause you not to do the things you should or to do the things you shouldn't do. The fear of man is a trap. It's a snare. It's a snare. The word of God tells us in Proverbs 29, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If we're truthful, and it's been a hard week for me, we all have a little Saul in our life. We all have a little Saul. If we're honest with ourselves, we care way more about what people think than what God thinks. And I believe the Lord is wanting to go after that in us. And Saul continues to double down in verse 30. After he gives us lame, I fear the people, but I want to worship your God. He says, come with me, go before the elders and the people of Israel and honor me in front of them. He still wants to save face. He is more concerned about his image before the people than obeying God. I think this is the difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is, I don't want to accept the consequences of my sin. Repentance is, it's genuine. It accepts the consequences. And Saul um, was not willing to do that. He was not willing to bend his heart and repent. This story ends tragically, and very quickly I'll get us through it. But I, I want to tell you how this story ends. And I want to want you to take heed this morning that the, the word of God says that whatever you don't put to death or crucify, whether that's pride, that's arrogance, that's a rebellious heart, may take you out. And in the case of Saul, it ended his life. 
If you have a chance today, go back and read 2 Samuel 1, uh, verses 1 through 10. And David, just to give you a little context very quickly, David goes to wage war against the Malachites, something that was Saul was supposed to do. And a man wanders into the camp, and David says, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite that escaped the Israel, uh, Israeli, Israeli, Israelite camp. And he says, I killed Saul. And he hands David his crown. He hands him a bracelet to verify that he did. And he said, well, how did this happen? He said, um, the ar- armies were closing in on Saul. He tried to fall on his own sword and commit suicide. During that process, uh, he heard noise behind him and says, who's there? And he says, it's me. I'm an Amalekite. He says, come and end my life. Ultimately, Saul was told to kill the Amalekites. And guess what? In the end, he was killed by an Amalekite. Some of you are involved in things today that if you don't repent, will end up destroying you. Maybe not tomorrow, but it will happen. Don't make the mistake of God's silence being approval of your sin. Why does this happen, Brad? Well, I believe Ecclesiastes 8.11, which says this, because God does not execute his judgment immediately, the hearts of men continue to sin. Don't mistake his silence as approval of your sin. What I would tell you is this, that God's silence is his grace and his mercy wanting you to repent and get right with the Lord. When God tells us that sin or sin habits need to die, we need to obey him. The Bible tells us we must die daily. We must crucify the flesh, not live by it. And God is not mocked. He's not fooled. Whatever you sow, that shall you reap. So what do we take from this text this morning? Worship team, would you come for me? Here's what I took from this text this morning. Disciples of Christ should be eager to obey every word from his mouth. We are not to vet. We're not to do feasibility studies. We're not to write a list on this side here, all, here are all the pros and here are all the cons. We are to say, yes, Lord. When he said, drop your nets, the answer was, yes, Lord. When he told me to go to Atlanta, the answer was, yes, Lord. When he says, sell everything, we say, yes, Lord. But somehow we've gotten this mindset that obedience is the bummer of the Christian life. And I love what Bob Sorge says. Obedience is not the downside or the the obligatory side of the Christian life. Actually, it's the liberating side of our faith. It makes the journey with him joyful, bright, and life-giving because we are walking in his good and perfect will. Here's what I learned, folks. Take this away. I would rather be in the storm with Jesus than be in the boat alone without him. Unreserved obedience always trumps self-protection and disobedience. But I have some good news. I know this is a hard-eating word. I'm asking for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you this morning. I got good news. It's never too late to obey the Lord. Your bad choices and your delayed or partial obedience are not beyond his, his plan. 
The good news is when God calls you to obedience, he gives you a plan. He has a plan for you to grow you in that. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. God is for you. He is not against you. Folks, the future of your marriage, if you're single, your future spouse, your children. Seth told me I can't walk away from the podium. I need to keep my hand right here. Your coworkers, and look around in this room, this body will be impacted by your delayed or partial obedience. This story illustrates this other principle, which is it's not how you start that counts. It's how you finish. And at 62 years old, God willing, I'm in the third quarter of my life. I want to finish well, obedient to the Lord. I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. So simply this morning, I'm going to ask you, are there areas of your life that you're refusing to obey God? Are you partially obeying God? Are you delayed in obeying God? What needs to die? Miss Jackie had a word beginning of our uh, 21-day prayer and fasting, and that was there's a holy fear of the Lord. There's a cloud above this place ready to expose secret sin. And we can either repent, get right, and I believe the Lord has given us another opportunity to do that just this morning. And I have to ask some of you, are you trading religious activity? Are you making sacrifice, but you're still not obeying the Lord? Listen, Saul's sin cost him everything, and it will cost us. Some of us are playing with fire. And it may just be smoldering or smoking, but left unchecked, it will be a fire. It will take you out. And it did Saul. His Saul's sin and disobedience cost him his calling, his family ever being on the throne, his relationship with the people. And ultimately, he died at the hands of an Amalekite. Sure, we will stumble along the way, along the way. But I ask you this morning, do you want to be King Saul? Making excuses, justifying? Or do you want to be King David, who will be the next king? Who was a man after God's heart? Who even though he stumbled and he sinned, he repented. He had radical, radical um, repentance in his heart. He worshiped the Lord. He honored him. He glorified him, even in the mistakes of life. Worship team, would you sing for us just a moment, and then we'll close.